Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Danya Zinarova, who's the Director of Manager Research Australia at Willis Towers Watson. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Very well. So, given your background, people know you as a, as a specialist across the real asset space. To maybe give people a bit of context in terms of um, the impact of COVID-19 across real estate and infrastructure, you know, what are the sectors that have been sort of most, most vulnerable and what sectors, you know, appear to be most resilient through this last few months sure yes that's um that's an interesting topic that gets a lot of attention from investors and the impact of covid19 on real assets really differs greatly across the sub asset classes and it is very likely to change in time depending on the severity of this pandemic on the broader economy and as you know there are still discussions whether this global slowdown will be followed by a V-shaped recovery or a more prolonged deep recession, it's still unclear. And the impacts will be felt in time. But broadly speaking, we would expect those sub-asset classes with greater exposure to GDP and trade to face more challenging times in the short term versus those asset classes with less economic sensitivity and higher income stability, which are expected to be more resilient to economic shocks. And looking across real estate and infrastructure, I would say the most vulnerable now within the real estate are sectors like retail, hospitality, leisure and restaurants. And some people add office sector here as well, but that's kind of still for debate. And on infrastructure side, it's mainly volume-based infrastructure, including airports, ports, toll roads, um, and then commodity-linked assets, um, for example, U.S. midstream and upstream oil and gas. In terms of the least vulnerable on the real estate side, logistics-related, e-commerce-related assets, uh, data centers, and then to some extent, non-discretionary retail supermarkets should withstand it well, as well as healthcare sectors within the real estate. And on infrastructure side, um, sectors like social infrastructure, PVP, um, utilities, um, the ones that are non-energy and then long-term contracted energy assets, um, as well as digital infrastructure, which um, I think will be really big going forward. So that's that's probably the short overview in terms of what does it mean for the sectors and um, how how do I see the attractiveness of those? Now you mentioned a couple of areas there around logistics, data centers, super supermarket, um, real estate, and health, and so forth. Um, but are there still opportunities that are in this space or, you know, if, if, if they've been seen as resilient, you know, do they still offer opportunities from a risk return perspective or is it still quite quite high in terms of valuations? Um, the valuations 
have still um, haven't still corrected. Um, so I think it is fair to say that the valuers are struggling to assess the real impact on valuations across um, sectors. And it's probably um, a slightly easier case for infrastructure, given the asset class characteristics. But for the real estate, often values rely not only on DCF approach, but also on comparable transactions. And given the liquidity in the market really dried up and we don't see that many transactions, uh, it's more challenging to reflect um, the real impact in values. So from the relative valuation point of view, we are probably seeing um, some impact on industrial and logistics, but it's quite minimal. Um, so from what I've seen so far, the valuations um, on some assets declined by one or two percent. Um, and there is a greater decline across other sectors like retail and office. But the expectation is really that this particular sector, i.e. logistic and industrial, should be much more resilient going forward uh, because there are some very strong tailwinds and megatrends that support the sector um, like looking, looking in the future. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the megatrends, I wanted to touch on a little bit more around the valuation. You said that valuations are still a bit stale. They haven't sort of come through and they, you, know, you haven't got the yeah. relative value. You know, I know a number of funds, you know, super funds here look at, at ETFs as, as another way, as implementation approach to, to getting access to some of these areas. Are you seeing the ETFs on the pricing on that side maybe being a little bit more um, you know, realistic, I guess, and I use that word sort of loosely or more closer to the underlying valuations? Uh, the, I would say no, because in this current environment, uh, when we look at um, anything that is listed, so even if we just talk about broader equities market, it's really um, demonstrating a lot of noise to investors and there is much greater disconnect between the equity market valuations and the real economic fundamentals um, that we are seeing. So I would be very careful using public market equivalents as a way of assessing valuations in unlisted real assets. Another point to take into consideration is that this current crisis is quite unusual in the way that there was a lot of stimulus provided by the government across the globe. And its um, impact is still um, not showing to the full extent. There is definitely, um, you know, it, it did provide some um, muted response from the businesses that were affected. Uh, but there is not enough clarity to say this government stimulus was enough um, to protect the underlying fundamentals. So from the valuations perspective, again, going back, it's important to see, uh, if we're talking about real estate, important to see at the factors like rent collection. Uh, 
and what's happening on that front because in particular in the core strategies on the re on the real estate side um you'd expect that around 50 to 60% of your total return would come from income and income um is driven by your rents and lease structures so what we saw um and it would differ by uh various markets but we saw uh, across some sectors in particular retail um that some tenants were struggling with rental payments and there was some decline in rent rental collections in the markets like the US which is less uh, regulated interestingly uh we already see some um court cases coming through when landlords uh bring their um cases to court and asking for tenants to pay the rents uh which were not which were deferred or not paid during the lockdown um and in quite a few cases um the tenants actually win um the argument i.e that um court decides in the in the favor of tenants and i think um the most recent ones who coming through where they um receive 75% relief in terms of the rental payment so this trend if it continues this will affect income returns further and then um values would be in a much better position to assess how does does it affect the overall valuation uh by using dcf methods um i think in terms of the investors and super funds they do have to take a stand and we saw in australia across um uh, some funds there um there were some um you know write off on infrastructure and real estate i think at around 10 to 15% across different portfolios again this is mainly done by super funds who have direct investments and have direct in, um in investment teams uh, within their organizations the ones who invest through fund managers uh they continue to rely on valuations provided by fund managers and australia did step up on the frequency of valuation so most of the real estate funds and i'm talking here about the so-called open-ended core real estate funds they um provide monthly valuations on their assets now which which does help to monitor the trend and dynamic i wanted to touch on you you mentioned the dcf methods and how that's being used for for both real estate and infrastructure sticking with with real estate again I know and I've talked with a couple of asset owners around sort of real estate they say okay this depression will last you know maybe or the depression in in rental um rates will de- will last for 2 or 3 years but will end up coming back so the ultimate change to valuation is not so much but you know is there a is there a chance that when you think about a lot of these different sorts of um types of of real estate across different parts of the sector a lot of these parts of this of real estate you've talked about still are, have a a GDP linked component so if gdp's ends up being depressed for 2 3 in some cases i've seen now 5 years that it will take to recover you know yeah. that that modeling can still have quite a large impact on on valuations um how, yeah. how do you think about it 
Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a little bit of, you know, um, do you have a crystal ball <laughs> question? <laughs> I think, um, to be honest, um, w- what's, um, what's clear to me, the investors can't expect the same level of returns from traditional real estate strategies. Um, and, you know, in Australia in particular, where the market really benefited from strong economic conditions and um, it's really historically looking at those core real estate strategies they've delivered for a fairly long period of time 10 to 12 percent net returns to investors that's unreasonable to expect this going forward i think what investors need to um, think about and worry about how to position their real assets portfolios going forward, um, i.e. what needs to be done with existing portfolios, in particular for the investors who have large exposure to those core traditional real estate strategies, and look a bit deeper in terms of is it the traditional office space that we are going to continue, that, that we continue to invest or is it a space where tenants are more linked to sectors like life science? Is it about tenants who are more linked um, to um, digital businesses or technology? Uh, because it's, I think it's unfair to say all real estate assets are closely linked to GDP. Um, at the end of the day, real estate assets is all about who is using them and what are the fundamentals of the businesses um, who use those assets. So if you get it right, i.e. diversify the underlying tenants by industries and in particular by industries that are less linked to GDP, then you should be in a good position to build a very resilient real estate and broader real assets portfolio. So you, know, you you talk a little bit about sort of the change the changing nature of of work and and sort of what what's happening more broadly and you talked a little bit about life sciences having resilience. You know, I wanted to sort of ask you the question around what core real estate looks like today because I think a lot of what core real estate um, may have looked like six months ago around traditional office and CBD um, yeah. and type of uh, retail centers that people wanted with your high foot flow traffic and so forth. Yeah, are these is these still the same sorts of core assets that we would expect for real estate, or or is that definition of core now changing because of people maybe choosing to move out of the urban centres, choosing to move away from the large scale um, shopping centres, move to a more online? Yeah, how how do you sort of think about core maybe changing? Um, yeah, I would you know I would probably link this to how. Um, consumer habits changing and consumer habits I'm talking here not only with regard to the retail sector in general um, how are our habits changing because um, you know when when you look when you look through all the reports on um, mega trends and um, kind of this societal shifts and changes there are a lot of um, 
findings that this current COVID-19 crisis uh, will be really general, it, it will trigger generational changes. It's, it's not something that would change for a year and then people would go back to normal. Um, so, you know, if we look in a bit more details around what does it mean for the, um, for the consumer habits, uh, we definitely see that you know consumer optimism has decreased, and more consumers and corporates they continue to expect a long-lasting impact from COVID nineteen. So the question is um, where they spending more, and it's very clear now that there is more spend on essentials and non non discretionary categories. Um, global consumers they anticipate pulling back across all categories besides groceries, personal care, household supplies, and home entertainment. And um, people also seem to be looking for figures of authority who tell them what to do. Uh, will the same thing apply to consumption in the future or not? But what's... Um, What's very interesting to observe that this COVID-19 definitely heightened people's sense of fear. And this will drive future behaviors um, that look to take back control. These behaviors uh, will affect how we work and how we live. So with regard to um, the, you know, working in the office um, dynamic or trend, um, looking now at most corporates globally, in the cases where they encourage their employees to go back to the office, there are very strict new office density requirements. And I saw for some of the global corporations, the new requirement is 25% of the office density. Can you, can you imagine this? 25%. So even thinking about the markets like Sydney, what does it mean um, for our CBD? Because over the past few years, uh, we built, um, you know, we saw some amazing office complexes built like Brangaroo and others. And now with the new density requirement, what is going to happen to these assets? So this is a very interesting question from investors to um owners or like fund managers who own these assets and it's about creative thinking how can you reposition a traditional office asset into something that can still um, attract tenants um, interest i.e can it be something broader than just an office can it be something like an office that would combine healthcare service that would combine more of a retail, that would combine more of an entertainment, quite possibly. So your question about what does um, core office look like at the moment, at the moment, I would say the core office looks like <laughs> it faces a lot of challenges um, around vacancy and declining rents. But if the owners of those assets employ creative approach to repositioning them, um, then we might see much more mixed-use assets rather than very traditional core sectors. 
Then what does it mean for the spending? Um, There is a very clear trend that um, people use more or like do more pragmatic spending, i.e. they focus their spending on home, they focus their spending on family life that would improve and enhance their state at home lifestyle. And the focus will be more on value and paying the right price for quality and usefulness. Um, so there will be, you know, greater t- determination to reduce waste, um, reuse goods as much as possible. And there is much less focus on materialism. It's It just doesn't uh, appear to be that appealing anymore to consumers. So the luxury retail um, may suffer as well. We already saw um, a trend, in particular in the markets like Australia, which um, you know I think is, is a very developed market uh, on the real estate front. There was a very clear trend um, using more of a digitalization. And I think in this current environment, this digitalization trends will only accelerate. And this goes both for the office space. Um, you know, when you talk about the virtual experience, there will be more needs to use new innovative technology in the office space. But then there is also much greater shift to online retail. Um, the way the consumers shop, what they buy was already evolving at great speed even before that crisis and so that process now is playing out much faster Um, we are all shifting to online digital solutions as well as reduced contact channels Um, i think i saw recently um, visual um, from bmw how you can now buy a car without really going to um, to a trader and you can just do it all online and your car will be delivered to you. So I think um, the, the, in summary, the, the real asset space, the unlisted real asset space, um, albeit it is a very slow-moving asset class given the illiquid nature I think uh, many trends that we've seen before the COVID-19 will accelerate and it will change the face of the core traditional sectors. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that investors should be spending more time to understand some of the new or newer alternate property sectors? You mentioned sort of life science as a part, um, data centers is another. Are there other options that are out there that, you, that you've seen? Absolutely. I think it's really key and important to start doing it now because a lot of this is already happening, in particular in the markets that have deep opportunity sets like Europe and the US. So digitalization is a really hot topic at the moment. And um, we, we are talking more here about digital infrastructure much broader than just data centers. It's about broader, um, you know, digital um, services, digital assets, broadbands, um, and the opportunity set in the markets like the US uh, are very, very deep. Historically, this space was really dominated by private equity players. But as this industry and subsector matured, and private equity players started exiting their assets, 
there is more room for in infrastructure players to come in and focus on those assets. Then life science, I, I honestly think it's, it's such a, an interesting space. There is a lot of funding going into the sector. Again, in the markets like the US, um, we already see some fund managers looking at specific life science strategies. Um, this space can also be accessed through the listed real estate market because there are some um, big names um, that um, I think in, in the US, uh, included in the US universe. Um, but this sector would be interesting from the perspective, uh, okay, very strong um, tailwinds, very strong megatrends supporting this, but also looking at the lease structures in this sector, they tend to be triple net leases, which is very attractive from the investor's point of view. So very secure um, and very you know, easy to manage um, compared to some other sectors. There are, you know, some other alternative property sectors, um, storage, which is not new per se, but within storage, there is an interesting niche strategy that is evolving now uh, that is called dark kitchens. And that is more linked to the trend or mainly a question whether people will continue going out to restaurants or whether the increasing trend to use takeaways will continue to increase, which is likely to be the case, in particular in the markets like Europe. Um, it's, it's quite niche now, so that's probably for investors who already have quite established real assets portfolios and they're looking to diversify or to reposition uh, their portfolios. This type of niche strategies could be very interesting. So and then on... Sorry, yeah, just, I just wanted to mention that energy transition remains to be a really big theme with a growing opportunity set. So it really not only about renewables, but also about storage and EV charging assets. So that was going to be my sort of my next sort of question was around um, infrastructure more broadly um, mm -hmm. and whether you know, infrastructure has the same sort of resilience um, as as previously, obviously, traditional infrastructure has had you know, reasonable amounts of leverage behind them because they were seen as quite simple cash flow, you know, as quite um, consistent cash flows that that you could model. That's obviously yeah. being changed now. Um, yeah. And so some of these assets have been marked down. Well, on the listed market, for for sure, private market is is to be seen. But I wanted to sort of get your thoughts in terms of infrastructure still as a as a resilient. Um, opportunity set and also to think about infrastructure with this broader um, backdrop of more sort of popular style um, concerns that are out there social unrest you know the likelihood yeah. for more taxes you know can infrastructure sort of withstand that that pressure um yeah, so I'll start with, um, with, the, with the first part of the question in terms of is infrastructure as an asset class um, resilient and can it with, withstand the current crisis? And the answer is yes, but it really depends uh, whether your exposure to infrastructure are within the assets that are predominantly linked to GDP. And we talked about this at, at the beginning of the conversation. Um, the infrastructure within subsectors like social infrastructure, PPP, and then energy transition 
that would be the infrastructure where you want to have a closer look and to explore opportunities there. In particular, that it's not um, a subsector that is, we, we can call it, uh, it is a very mature uh, subsector. So there are a lot of opportunities from the valuation perspective, but also a lot of opportunities for um, strong growth going forward. Um, in terms of the social unrest and um, in potential implication uh, from the tax perspective, really can't comment on the tax question. But from the social unrest, I would probably link this question more to um, a stronger focus of investors on um, ESG when they make investment decisions. And here, I really would like to talk about the S, uh, i.e. the social component. And we do see already um, this trend in the Australian market. So we see some large super funds who have internal investment teams and invest directly looking more and more at social housing and social infrastructure more broadly. So as I said, there is definitely a greater shift now on linking your investment objectives, not only to um, risk return targets, but also what societal impact you can make through your investments and what impact do you make on climate through your investments or on your environment. This, is, um, this has been quite strong in Australia already, but I think the current crisis only re-emphasized the importance of this. Um, so I expect we'll see more um, strategies evolving and emerging in the Australian markets, but also globally in some, in some of the European markets that are focusing much more on, um, how shall I say it, on, on equitable investments approach, i.e. investments that um, would focus on greater positive impact on the society rather than just looking at the returns. Um, that, that this mind shift is, is very important and um, I think greatly supported by the Australian investors as well. The other piece that I wanted to add there is, is sort of, and you mentioned about sort of almost the, the return trade-off that comes with it, and there is this, this sort of overhang of regulatory or sovereign risk around particular yep. assets. And so that was the other point that I wanted to sort of raise and, and what are your thoughts there? To be honest, it's not anymore, Alex, it, in my mind, it's not anymore a question that you, if you invest uh, with strong ESG beliefs, then you make a trade-off on the risk return. Um, it's really the other way around. If you don't invest with a strong ESG mindset, it will affect negatively your returns. Um, that's very clear to me. In particular, when we look um, at some of the sectors, you know, within mining, there was a lot of press in Australia. I think some of the super funds or industry funds in Australia were affected and quite criticized in press um, for certain investment decisions. But it's not only about the PR or media reaction. It's about actually the sustainability of your investment returns. Um, because energy tra transition as a theme 
it's not um, something that people do only uh, thinking about the environment and the climate change. Um, they think about the long-term impact uh, of more traditional strategies on, on their returns. And we saw that, that returns have been declining on that front. Um, so it's a win-win really for investors, but also for the broader society to adopt this mindset and not think, well, if I have strong ESG credentials in my portfolio, that means it's a trade-off uh, for my um, investors in the portfolio. That That's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. So maybe on a final area to sort of talk about is a lot of what you've just discussed, you know, is, is a broader global piece. But, you know, when you look at Australia, the opportunity set, you know, still remains fairly small and maybe not as diverse as what we're seeing globally. But how, how do Australian investors sort of think about these new investment opportunities globally, um, particularly in a world of, of COVID where it's, it's quite difficult to, to fly in and, and go and do due diligence and start to, to look at some of these things? Yeah, that's, that's a very good observation, Alex. And, and I agree with you that um, in Australia, the opportunity set for this type of strategies uh, remains fairly small. It may change over time, but it is small. It is not very diverse. And if we think about the um, investors pool here, um, so basically, in other words, asset owners, and that's predominantly uh, super funds, industry funds, and Australia is the fourth largest pension market in the world. There is definitely just not enough capacity in Australia uh, to deploy this um, capital. So investors would need to look outside Australia. Um, the ones who are based here or have local teams may need to think a bit more in terms of establishing uh, partnerships uh, with global counterparties and we, we already see this um, happening when um, certain transactions or deals are done in JVs with um, offshore-based investors or asset owners. Uh, but also thinking um, about whether um, you know the, the local or based on the ground model really works for them going forward and whether it makes sense to start building out the teams outside Australia or um, just rely more on the global service providers uh, within the investment industry. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the current crisis really supports the case uh, for the greater diversification. So it's not only a case about how small the opportunity set in Australia is, but it's also, yes, um, you do want to diversify your portfolio, not just by sub-asset classes within real assets, but also by different risk-return drivers, which includes the global diversification. It's interesting there, you, you just sort of mentioned about risk risk and return. Now, some a lot of what you've sort of discussed you know, represents individual assets. Um, a number of the super funds in Australia are moving more to a total portfolio approach and how they think about it. You know, yeah. h- how does that sort of map up in terms of thinking about these assets and mapping up to a uh, a broader risk within a total portfolio you know, approach to to construction? It's it's a perfect match, Alex. <laughs> it's a perfect match because um, if you think about the strategies that we talked with you today, um, it, 
they are not easily fit in a more traditional real assets portfolio. And when I talk about the more traditional real assets portfolio, you'd be looking at more of a bucket approach. So you would have real estate within real estate. You would have subcategories like office, retail, industrial, and others. Um, and then similarly in infrastructure. And very often other sub-asset classes within real assets, they are not even included in the portfolio because there is no place for them from the portfolio construction point of view. But this um, current mega trends and new emerging strategies within real assets, they actually require much broader thinking about portfolio construction. They require much deeper understanding um, on the relative value perspective, i.e. looking across strategies um, that we talked about, across infrastructure, across real estate, and thinking from the value perspective, where does it make sense to invest now? Uh, but then also having this flexibility to invest across different subsectors and across different strategies means that you have a much better chance to capture the growth potential within those um, strategies and trends. So perfect match. I think total portfolio approach really makes um, a lot of sense. And of course, I'm a big supporter. You know, Willie Stars Watson uh, kind of developed uh, this uh, approach. And so we, we really believe in this. Um, and we've been talking a lot about this with our clients and with market participants. Um, I think going forward, what we see in real assets um, and adopting a more flexible and, you know, not everyone can adopt immediately total portfolio approach, but thinking more flexibly and thinking broader about um, real assets and what does it mean for the portfolio that um, that really means um, you, you can be much more successful with the total outcome at the portfolio level. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Daniel. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.